Our Three Cents is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com. Welcome to the third in a tetralogy of bonus episodes of Our Three Cents, where myself, Chris Dow, and pal Minty Booth it is I. have romped off the beaten path to tell you to date about infants, gaming magazines of the mid-90s, petulant co-op partners, and excrement. Today, though, more games, or more specifically, more internet games. Announcement! Announcement! Before cleaving someone's shins by leaping in with this two-footed challenge of an episode, here are your weekly reminders that we're not just here on That There Podcast, but also generating prime cuts of content across Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Why not join in with discussions at facebook.com slash r3cents? Peruse our square format photographs on Instagram at O3C Podcast, or watch mini documentaries, archived streaming content, and other bits and bobs by searching for R3Cents Podcast on YouTube. For anyone that has just listened to all that and thought, bloody hell, all of that for free? I should really consider chucking these boys some actual sense. We have a Patreon at patreon.com slash R3Cents. Loads of extras are available there in exchange for some scaling pledges. Now, before we digitise and leap into a big pool of Web 2.0, what have we been playing this week? Minty Booth, what's been on your gaming agenda? Well, well, oh well. I have beaten the main story of Age of Calamity. Ooh, I'm way behind you. I don't know what to say about it, to be honest. Um... Much like all the people who were lamenting what uh, Cyberpunk 2077 could have been, I think I'd built up what I thought the ending of this game would be, and I've been left slightly disappointed. Ah, Sadly. That's not what you want. Only by cutscenes, if that makes sense. Yeah. I'm still having a, a great time with the actual gameplay, just cleaving my way through hundreds of thousands of Bacoblins, Moblins, <laughs> Rosalfos... Lynels, Hinoxes and Wizrobes. Like, the actual gameplay itself is great fun, which, you know, that, that's the main selling point of a Dynasty Warriors game. Like, just cutting down shitloads of people. Yeah. On that front, it delivers. And being sort of a hybrid between Breath of the Wild and a Dynasty Warriors game absolutely delivers. But, oh, I don't know. I just, I had it in my head that this was going to just give us one tiny little bit of context for Breath of the Wild 2. And it hasn't, but maybe it will when I beat it 100%. You never know. And then trade it in for eShop credit to buy Hyrule Warriors Deluxe Edition again. <laughs> Do you not own it anymore? No, I traded it in for... Oh, f- fucking Link's Awakening, I think. <laughs> That's not a good trade. I mean, Link's Awakening is a lovely game, but mm. in terms of, you know, the the content to, to pound ratio... No, it was, it was a significant downgrade. <laughs> not the best deal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Link's Awakening's like one and done weekly play and then you're you're out. Well that's it, yeah, yeah. Have you played anything else or is that you you wrapped up? I'm I'm trying to work my way through Doom on Ultraviolence. How's that playthrough going? Fine, yeah. I've beaten uh, episode one, so I'm working through episode two at the moment. It's good. It's hard, isn't it? Yeah. It's not as hard as Doom Two because there's not more enemies. It's just a very tight selection of monsters. Yeah. I got into shooters sort of around the time when uh, chest high walls and cover and all the rest of it was a thing. Just kneel down in a bush and you'll recover from your eight chest wounds. Yeah. It's a different time 
it's a different time, so <laughs> I'm, I'm struggling to adjust to the real fast-paced run-and-gun gameplay yeah. that doesn't sort of pat you on the head and say, oh, that fight was a little bit hard, but here's a little something for the next one. It's just, oh, you've been hit. That change in design as well, it's not just a case of, of doing a fight and then recovering. In a lot of games, you can recover 16 times mid-fight. Well, that's it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> providing the wall is not something that breaks. So it really does soften the difficulty in, in those games, even when you're playing on, on ostensibly hard modes. Mm. I think back on the 360, I beat uh, the original Gears of War on, on the highest difficulty. And that was purely because mid-battle, I could just chill out for a bit <laughs> you know if i had to like get through something like doom on, on ultraviolence or nightmares the top one isn't it yes there's no chance absolutely no chance because you you have to be just like an actual god in terms of maneuverability and understanding you know how the systems of that game work to really exploit them to your advantage yeah yeah so yeah like you say different time mm. but i think that's what keeps me coming back to it the fact that yeah. it's not just a oh wait a couple of seconds and then move on it's oh you've died Oh, you've died again. <laughs> yeah. Instead of just being like a wait, progress, wait, progress, it's progress, but then die, go back a bit. It's a strange distinction between progressing slowly and progressing quickly because of the pace of the gameplay, but also having to go back to the beginning of the level several times because it's just fucking rock solid gameplay. Yeah. It's excellent. I'm having a great time. Glad I picked it up again. What have you been up to? What have you been playing? I've played a little bit more of Age of Calamity. Not that much, so I haven't made a huge amount of progress this week. I also played another hour or so of Chrono Trigger mm-hmm. off the back of last week's episode. Lovely. I've now beaten the first big boss and am now attempting to take stock of my team before I assume I'm going to be warped in a different direction through time again. Mm. So it's by my bedside charging because the 3DS battery doesn't last very long anymore. <laughs> but no, no. It is there, ready to go. I've also started playing a new music-based block-dropping puzzle game called Mixalumia that recently came out on Steam, and it is very, 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 very up my street. (laughs) It's one of those kind of like perfect genre pieces for me. It's a block-dropping puzzle game that's more Lumines than it is Tetris. Yes. Uh, It's got a a great style. It's got simple kind of customizable palettes for the block colours. It's got a generative soundtrack that's influenced by your drops and movement, similar to kind of the Tetris effect and things like that. It sets itself apart from its forebears and inspirations by having you have to manage a stack that tapers down to a point as opposed to being like a flat bottom well. Oh. So as your kind of quads are dropped down like little chunks of four pieces, it will splinter at the top of your sort of sharp pile and then slide down the slope either side. And the real challenge comes from managing that kind of process of thinking how is that going to fall and how is that then going to create like a three in a row or or like a four in a quad because of that it's got a very steep learning curve especially if you're someone who struggled with a game like Lumines at at first because it's a very different way of playing than Tetris or or Dr Mario or any game like that it's more than just thinking about the placement of each drop because you also have to think about how how you break these pieces into like smaller patchworks and, and how they're going to drop down and then produce these combinations. It's got the potential to be a real sleeper hit for someone that has tastes like me. Like, I, I really like the early stage of learning a puzzle game, and it's got that same sort of feeling I had when I did start playing Luminaires on the PSP, that there is a very gradual sense of progress that each time you you try out a marathon game, you're going kind of, what am I doing? Why, why, am, I, why am I failing so quickly? And yet a few plays in, you're you're starting to be able to you know make your turn last longer and longer your score starts going up as you understand how the combos work 
like these days, if I if I pick up Luminaires, an endless mode game can last me two or three hours without much issue. And I think this is a a much harder starting point that eventually has the potential to open up in that same way. Mm-hmm. And that's a really great feeling. Like I, I really like the uh, the idea that in puzzle games you can get better. Yeah, and that's that's been me really. Mm. To round out our thoughts on the contemporary before we travel back in time, we have a festive Borg in the form of Jonotron Dunn. Jonatron, oh Jonatron, what have you played during this week? <laughs> Jonatron, baby, slip your gaming <laughs> thoughts under the tree for me. <laughs> Insert your coin. Usually when I finish a Souls-like game I immediately want to carry on and play something else in the same vein. But then, sensibly, I realize that I'm not a musicist and promptly pick up something much calmer and more colorful on the eShop. All this has changed now that I led my life by the winds of my baby's tongue and bum, and it has seen me spend several nights on feeding duty whilst I allow my phenomenal, frankly superhuman, wife to get some well-earned rest. The way I have kept myself cogent, alert and semi-motivated during these stints is by coming straight off the back of my replay of Dark Souls Remastered on the Switch and diving straight into Dark Souls 2, Scholar of the First Sin on the PlayStation 4. Dark Souls 2 has twice fallen foul of my post-Souls-like rebound behavior, having attempted to start it twice before. This time, I've fortunately had the constitution to give it the attention and tolerance it so earnestly deserves and have been rewarded hugely with another incredible game, positively drenched in the most medieval of lore, and doused from head to toe in the most delicious design work you'll find in any game. The first thing I will say is, this game is absolutely fucking enormous. It feels about ten times bigger than Dark Souls 1. This is partly because you can now work directly between any bonfire you light, which means you can tackle the whole world as one big level as opposed to just dealing with the areas in relative isolation. The developers really lean into this by including elements in all areas that you'll need to remember their location of to revisit later in the game when you've got a certain item or key or ring. Basically item gating like a Zelda dungeon or Metroidvania. It's fantastic. There are a lot of refinements to the game over the original which improve it in almost every way. I don't like the slowly diminishing health you have every time you die, but fortunately there is a ring early on in the game that negates a lot of that impact, so it's not a worry for too long. And it's also warming me up for when I finally tackle Demon's Souls on the PS5 next year which has a much harsher system in place, so bring that on. One of the criticisms I made about this scholar of the first sin edition last time I attempted to play it is that it seemed to be quite unfair with enemy placement. If an area wasn't deemed hard enough in the original version they chuck in a bigger enemy or about four more little enemies making it feel like you weren't able to attack it with a strategy, it just wanted you to suffer. And, contrary to belief, suffering isn't what the Dark Souls games are about. It's about failing and learning and slowly improving. There are elements that are almost reminiscent of the roguelike in the way you progress through the game. Quite delicious. I still had a few of these frustrations with some areas and some instances of enemy placement, but because this world feels more open to explore than the original, if I got bored or fed up of a certain area, there was always somewhere else to easily work back to and explore instead until my patience had returned. 
I just finished the main game, and despite having a brilliant time, with my beautiful little daughter snoozing on my chest giving me all the support I needed to rekindle the first flame and restart the Age of Fire, I must say that I don't quite have the stamina needed to tackle all of the DLC included in this edition of the game. I'm in desperate need of some color and fun. So, I've started playing Persona 5 Royal, that famously short JRPG, and I'm looking forward to sinking many hours into that over the next however many sleepless nights coming my way. As ever, Jonatron, my boy, your observations are entertaining, astute, and at least this week, appropriately festooned. (laughs) (laughs) I love that guy. So, the internet. Here we go. We are both millennials. That is, young people that have lived their formative years during the turn of the millennium. And I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that the biggest cultural shift during that time, and one that fed into fashion and media, commerce, personal identity, etc, etc, just everything really, was the advent of the mainstream internet. Now, in a broad sense, my exposure to the internet at this time meant that I was suddenly aware of more games for the consoles and handhelds I owned than print journalism had ever offered me. But more importantly for today's episode, it also gave me access to games that lived exclusively on the internet, or games that I could never have acquired if it weren't for that global connection. For this episode, we have each picked a game or two that we have particularly detailed and defined memories of to discuss a little further into the episode. But for now, Minty, can you set the scene for us and tell us a bit about the Minty that was and your early exposure to gaming on, in, and of the World Wide Web? I've played a lot of browser-based games and i don't know why but i've always held it very lightly when it comes to appreciating gaming in general perhaps it's something to do with the sort of the transience of opening up uh, armor games or new grounds playing about 40 games in the space of about 15 minutes and then <laughs> you know having having nothing to show for it apart from a few cookies in your temporary files i often think back to before i knew you chris yeah i was sharing an office with jonathan and I would hear him talk about uh, the conversations he's had with you about things like when Pokemon Go was first announced, or maybe Miitomo or something, and how you would lament at length at the idea that game ownership was diminishing rapidly thanks to these AAA franchises releasing these types of games alongside the glut of free-to-play and pay-to-win dross yeah. that you can easily bankrupt yourself from your phone playing. And then, of course, Pokemon Go came out. Yeah. And on the same day, you texted Jonathan with the phrase, Game of the Year. <laughs> Which is neither here nor there, but uh, considering just how long I've played browser-based games for over my whole life, I think it was my process in working out my top 100 that meant I didn't pick any of those games or the like for my list. Yeah. I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast, but I basically just wikipedia every console I've ever owned made a spreadsheet of all the games I played off of each one and then ranked them. So I didn't even think to include browser-based games at all, which is a shame because there are some really incredible ones out there. They're ready and waiting for literally anyone to play. And what they lack in the supposed integrity that comes with physical ownership, they make up for in being exactly what a game should be. They're fun. It's a fun and edifying experience, even if you're partaking on a work PC in stolen moments between people calling up to book tickets or whatever like they have in the past uh, well nearly 15 years of my life i think you're right there's a sense that some of these games and some of these avenues to playing games have now lived with us for a very long time and 
as much as like some of my list I have included mobile games, I didn't include anything that would be, like you say, these kind of games that exist in the liminal internet space. But looking back and thinking about this for this episode, I've said before when talking about Tetris Effect of all things, that the millennium for me represented a period of just relentless optimism online. You know, we, we think about this today. The internet in 2020 is almost polarizingly good and bad in equal measure. Mm. We've got a sort of Schrodinger's cat situation where it really is impossible to know if the internet as a mass, as a whole, is good because of how it's democratized information or bad because it's given voice to the very worst in digital and physical societies. Whether or not it's good because of how it's opened access to media and culture that would be impossible to access otherwise. Or if it's bad because it's helped legitimize a culture of rank disgusting entitlement (laughs) but back in 2000 you know i I was chatting to strangers using microsoft comic chat or or chatting to pals using icq i was playing flash games or downloading little digital buddies that would sit on your desktop and almost certainly installed malware as they bounced all over the screen oh the bonsai buddy oh bonsai buddy we loved them yeah yeah (laughs) like that was all good all of the time (laughs) no caveats all positive it was a boundless world there were no limits to what could be achieved and i mean i joke in part obviously but this initial exposure to the web was hugely important i think in the development of my taste in the development of my humor my relationships my digital literacy and obviously games were were a huge part of that as well that sort of period of internet as well was the time that me and jonathan used to make silly games using click and play or the games factory And the feeling of being able to share these in person, like amongst each other, but also online in small communities was fantastic. I made a shitty racing game called Killam Derby. I made a shitty platform game called Dunce Goes to Hollywood. And then a shittier platform game, imaginatively titled Cool Dude. Yeah. (laughs) And and having my own place on the web for people to download them from and give me feedback in a stupid little, uh, you know, drop down, send me a message sort of link at the bottom of the web page. It all felt amazing. And staking out that that little space where everyone seemed to be positive and constructive was lovely like other creators would help me improve my shitty games they'd help me edit the basic code they'd make suggestions and it was just a really nice time to be online yeah yeah. over time like a little bit later i would dip my toes into some text only online rpgs i i can't remember the names of any of them to save my life but i remember the evening spent mapping out like a dungeon on paper and then carefully typing in compass directions to move from room to room. Later still, I'd jump on, like you mentioned, the Flash Games craze of early secondary school for me, spending every free moment at the school computers fucking around with basic tower defense or mouse-based shooters or whatever. Line Rider was a particular treat that I spent a lot of time oh, with. Oh, we loved Line Rider, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, for anyone that's never played it or heard of it, it still exists, it's out there. You basically use your mouse to draw out a track on which a little sledder could tackle, gaining momentum with your doodles, peaks and troughs. Perversely, it was a web game that proved so popular, it even got a DS and Wii sequel come remake. I did not know this until doing a bit of research today to see if Line Rider still existed. That's madness. Wowie. yeah. But I was fascinated to find out that, you know, this particular version, it's called Line Rider 2. So this is a canonical sequel. Mm. It had bespoke line courses created by notable community members from the web. It had voice acting. It had a story. (laughs) It's like it really was mid-2000s over-engineering at its finest. Didn't need to exist, but it does. No, it's it's just an acoustic trials fusion, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what a wonderful sentence. (laughs) (laughs) But 
all of these memories, they represent proper halcyon days of the web for me. Mm. And I think that's because they're all unified by the fact that they took place before social media became the primary driver of the web. Oh, yeah. So the communities that I was part of and the things I did online, it involved talking to people, but not in a way that involved talking to people and expecting clout. Yeah, yeah. And I think social media has really killed that sense of just having a chat for the sake of having a chat. So, yeah, the internet, great. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I fucking hate social media. Yeah. This is horrible to say, but I hate the way it's given everybody a way to share their stupid opinions <laughs> which when it comes to things like uh, maybe the, the imminent covid-19 vaccine yeah people who are perhaps anti-vaxxers it's given them a legitimate platform to share their views which are actually incredibly damaging yeah. to uh, the betterment of human society as a whole while the internet was in its infancy when like maybe 10 or 15 years ago when when we were just starting to uh, get to grips with it. just just what the entire collective human experience in a single basically online database was all about yeah it still felt so boundless and like you said so optimistic but then instead of the people that sort of sought out the same people who shared interests and had that drive as opposed to just anybody being like well i heard that um I don't know, it just seems so much more positive back then, if that makes sense. Because you always have people saying, like you said, like, oh, this is good. Here are some things that you can improve on, as opposed to, there is room for improvement here, so this shit sucks and you're gay. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's wild. It's, it's, <laughs> it's upsetting, actually, thinking about it. But Yeah, it is. I mean, again, I, I must have told this story in, in variations a few times, but... Coming back to Tetris Effect and why it feels like this period of time distilled into a game for me. When that game released, or at least when the demo released, and I said on the podcast at the time it made me cry. Mm. I think it's because that song that plays, like the one that was in the trailers, the one that most people that recognise that game will know. Everything about it, like it's kind of presented as a love song, I guess. But the, the, the lyrics of it that I've just, I've looked up to make sure I got this right. It says, I'm yours forever. There's no end in sight for us. Nothing could measure the kind of strength inside our hearts. Don't you forget it. We're all connected in this life. Mm. And that felt like the internet. That felt like when I met the internet as, as a, you know, not as a person, obviously, but as a thing that I would then have every day in my life from that point forwards. Yeah, yeah. That's what it felt like. It was something that's like suddenly everyone is connected. Everything comes together. And it felt like something that was built purely out of love for other people and humankind and the games on the early internet felt like that because it was just people making stuff to put out and hope that someone went oh, i enjoyed that and that was the driver and yeah it's it's a different time it is a different time yeah yeah at some point it shifted from this grand ideal of uh, global unity to just incredible shards of divisiveness yeah well, I saw a tweet a few months ago where someone asking, what was what was the one incident where you realised that humanity had shifted down to the dark timeline? And there were some, some real crackers, among which the top ones were uh, when Chris Pratt got thin, <laughs> Coney 2012. <laughs> oh, fucking hell. Do you remember that? That is a campaign. Yeah, that yeah. really does sum up modern 
social media more than almost anything else. Yeah, yeah. Fucking hell. I think for me, when I realised that the internet was was polarising instead of unifying, was when Clint Eastwood talked to Invisible Obama on that chair. Do you remember that? <laughs> I don't know, actually. Oh, he turned up at, I think it was a, it was a Republican National Conference, and he pulled out a chair and he pretended to talk to Barack Obama, who was, who was sitting on it. <laughs> and it was just, oh, it was the most dog shit year nine drama <laughs> class thing you have ever seen and people were sort of lauding it saying oh can you believe that Clint Eastwood completely owned Barack Obama here he wasn't even there yeah right we, we got to roll this back to positivity yeah, yeah. positivity <laughs> video games please we need this so Minty as a man of culture can you regale our listeners with any tales of, of web-based or web-adjacent games in particular that tickled your early 2000s pickle? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, as I was learning to use my early 2000s pickle... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it coincided with um, when I first came across the website Neopets. <laughs> Oh, God. I'm really upset that um, getting one's pickle involved with anything based on the internet when I was 13 have coincided in this podcast because <laughs> I've never used my pickle when it comes to anything on Neopets. <laughs> I don't know if anybody else listening has ever enjoyed Neopets, but um, it was... Oh, let's not beat about the bush. Neopets was a fantastic website. You could adopt up to one of, I think it was, 52 different fantasy animals at the time that I started playing, ranging from the little the little cat with the droopy ears to the little sad-looking dragon to the funny thin dolphin to the angry fatter dolphin. <laughs> or... My first pick, some sort of weird bee-looking thing, who I named Buttercup Fairy 217. Good memory. And with the creation of your very first Neopet, you could enjoy many of the different Flash games that they had produced on their website, including what I think was probably the absolute pinnacle of early 2000s Flash gaming, Destructo Match. That rings a bell. Yeah, well, once you'd fed your Neopet using the uh, the free food that you get from the giant omelette every day in Tyrannia, you could click over and open up Destructo Match, which was basically, it put you in the guise of, I guess, of the chief architect of the municipal district, and you've got all these different coloured houses in a big old sort of 10 by 8 square, and you had to click on two matching coloured houses to get rid of them they would disappear and everything would drop and then you click on another couple of houses that matched they'd drop and as you got rid of different colored ones combos would build and you can click on ones that were maybe 15 of the same colored houses for a massive combo and all the rest of it it was excellent like it was just good gratifying mindless fun and i think that was the point where i was like oh maybe i don't need the nintendo to just sort of enjoy video gaming this is this is really great fun <laughs> And I must have spent about, wowee, across all the games on that website, at least maybe 4,000 hours. Oh, bloody hell. Thinking about it. 
I started playing in year eight when I was how old would I have been then? Twelve? Yeah, I think. Yeah, I played it up until about fifteen. You know, you'd be doing your homework, like talking about how the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, or the themes in of mice and men. <laughs> oh, I've just uh, printed off three pages. Time to crack on with evil fuzzles from outer space, or <laughs> you know, Chomby and the fungus balls and all that, all that nonsense. It was wild, like. It's a very early repository of an incredibly varied collection of Flash games. Uh, Neopets was probably taking into account sort of, I guess, the inflation of the Web 2.0. It really holds its own against things like Armor Games or Congregate. Yeah. Hypothetically, Neopets as, as a platform, if you kind of condense it into a thing, how do you think you would rank that on a list? Just like a ballpark kind of an area. If you're talking about that experience, in the same way someone might rank, say, an evolving MMO, if they played Warcraft for years, where do you think the Neopets experience ranks for you in your top 100? What a question. Top 20. Jeez. As a whole website, instead of just one of the games that you click on, yeah, like looking after your pets, playing the games, making money from the shops, trying to find all of the uh, treasure map pieces to get to the secret laboratory. Oh, boy. I wish I thought of the whole website as a game because, yeah, yeah, that wow, oh, mm, <laughs> oh, oh, I'm I'm sad you've asked me this. I'm sorry. <laughs> as a whole experience, it was incredibly gratifying, but yeah, I just compartmentalized um, like every individual flash game. I was like, well, I remember Destructo Match, but it's not fucking going on my list. Can you imagine? <laughs> but yeah, Neopets as a whole. The whole website was incredibly fun, but it's our top 100 video games, not our top 100 websites. Well, so, well, <laughs> <clears throat> well, yeah, yeah. I think this plays into to what I wanted to say as well. That as a kid, I think I saw gaming as having very distinct prongs. Mm. So I'd expect certain things from console games. I would expect certain things from from handheld games, like the Game Boy I had at the time. And then when I started becoming more online as it were Mm. the internet was like a third pillar of my gaming diet so in that way you're saying kind of like the idea of a website that collects together these these small experiences is a different thing i think i probably felt similar even then when you know a two megabyte file could take all of my allotted internet time in the evening to download Mm. i was still fascinated the amount of stuff that was out there and and also the lack of relative quality control in games that were available freely online. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. you know, you had curated sites like Neopets that had maybe a bit more theming behind it to keep things in check to a certain degree. But then you had other sites where it was an absolute free-for-all, just the Wild West. Anyone could put anything up with some very simple checks and balances. For me, as, as I touched on earlier, I found the early days of having a computer and, and access to the internet on a, on a penny-a-minute dial-up impossible to separate from click and play uh, as as a tool for making games and, and playing simple games i would would make these games as i mentioned some of those terrible things I, I did as a kid but i'd also ravenously play games by other people and again it didn't matter if they were good or not particularly it was just the idea that there was an almost constant stream of things to play that were different from what i had in my game boy and what i had on my my home console i was really trying to think of like specific titles that i played back then And I remember titles like one called Walkertron that was sort of a soft point and click come simple platform adventure. I remember very basic adventure titles that I think was in a series called Nasty Man. I remember single screen jump and run games like Bubble Girl. Mm. 
but I have a very special place in my heart for the games of a New Zealand developer named Ben, who I befriended at the time after he helped me plug a few gaps in my own click-and-play coding knowledge. His own games appealed to me above a lot of the other click-developed stuff that was doing the rounds at the time, because it had hand-drawn art that was then scanned and kind of pixelised that way. It might have been restricted in colour, because of kind of the limitations of click and play, but it, it didn't feel restricted in terms of like simple animation or, or simple pixel art like a lot of other titles were. And it had a great sense of humour as well, at least to my sort of pre-teen tastes. He had a trilogy of games called the Space Waster trilogy, like Space Waster 1, 2 and 3, which started off as initially simple just side-scrolling shoot-em-ups that increased in scope with each successive project so the first game was very much just a vanilla fly to the right, shoot the baddies type affair. But by the third game, all the characters and enemies were fully animated from those hand-drawn and, and scanned stills. There were interstitial cutscenes and animations. There was MIDI music that had been composed by the creator, Ben himself. He did fighting games later, one called Flop Wrestling, one called Bamboo Dragon Warrior that riffed on the WWE and, and 70 and 80s martial arts films respectively. In both cases, they'd offer two-player fighting engines that were far outside what was considered possible in click and play. Flop Wrestling in particular had a fully AI-controlled character on one stage that was able to read and respond to your movements and attacks, and it felt like absolute wizardry for a piece of software that was intended to create essentially just simple Arkanoid clones or single-screen platformers or really simple racing games with rigidly fixed path movement for, for enemies or computer-controlled cars. I lost touch with Ben when I was about 13 or 14. He was a fair few years older than me, and I imagine as he would go on to bigger and better things in his own life, he probably didn't have time to respond to emails from a weird kid in the UK asking about crash fixes for click and play. <laughs> but what I feel this whole saga represents is the ability, again, as we've said so many times today, for the early mainstream internet to be a sum force for good, because it connected people of all ages and all backgrounds over just shared interests no ulterior motives, just reasonably wholesome friendships based on sharing a like of something. Amazingly, Ben's website at the time is still archived online at mopro.tripod.com oh. and it was a real blast from the past to see the hobbyist web design of the era as well. Just text and hyperlinks on a black background, MIDI that would attempt to play automatically over every page and, and sections dedicated to Ben's own projects as well as his love of racing games like early entries in the Need for Speed franchise. There was also an in-construction page that was going to cover the rock band ACDC <laughs> and, and links to other websites including my long defunct Click Games website, Dowboy Productions. Hey. <laughs> so, the dead link is there but you can see my old web address existed. Now Sadly, the, the games themselves, whilst available to download, they're still there on that tripod site. They don't seem to play on modern hardware at all. Like, I tried various compatibility modes to get the installers to boot, but my laptop as a Windows 10 machine was just not having it. I've not given up entirely, as I would really love to relive some of these memories again through more than just very small compressed JPEG screenshots. But for now, I think I'm going to have to make do with just the latent thoughts of, of evening set aside to play weird builds of click games and hazy remembrances of ICQ conversations and, and emails gone by. Do you have any other games in particular that you associate with this time of like the 56k modem and beyond? I do, yes, yes. After Neopets and after sort of the juddery, you know, three frames per second flash games on my poor old parents' work PC which was 
basically calibrated just to print out invoices. I was turned on to the on onto the vibrant world of multi-user dungeons Ooh. by one of my friends. So John Michael, if you're if you're watching, congratulations, you've made it. <laughs> <laughs> he sent me a, a GMUD client um, over MSM Messenger. Yes, folks, this is 2004. <laughs> and I opened up what basically looked like a shittier version of the Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> An entirely text-based thing when we were enjoying such things as the PlayStation 2 and the Xbox and the Nintendo GameCube. Heaven forfend. But after a couple of hours just trying to get to grips with this this weird black screen with uh, keyboard inputs and trying to figure out what on earth to do, something just clicked and it almost just started becoming second nature. To simply move into another room, you just have to press E and you would move east, south, and you would go south, up, and you would climb this ladder here, there, and everything. Instead of just being overwhelmed by walls of text, you simply need to read the text to give you clues as to what to actually do in a room. This was the very first time, looking back, I'd experienced anything close to online gaming. Oh, so it's a, an important title. Yeah, it was the Discworld MUD, which I started playing before I'd read a single Discworld book. But for a game that is not affiliated in any way, it's, it's an incredibly faithful reimagining. Not only in terms of just how all the cities and everything are laid out. So, like uh, looking at the maps that um, all the uh, creators of the Discworld mod had created, and looking at the the lovely and elaborate uh, maps of things like Ankhmore Pork or Jelly Baby or Best Pelagic that Jack Kidby had made, they're an incredibly faithful reproduction nearly one-to-one which when you're working with nothing but a text-based terminal on a keyboard it's it's an incredible accomplishment and past that it's got the foundations of just an incredibly good role-playing game because you're not going in sort of expecting to be Sam Vimes or Rincewind or anybody like that none of these named characters you're just being plonked in this universe and given the freedom to do whatever you want basically there are maybe seven or eight guilds you can be a wizard a witch a warrior thief assassin or a priest and each one has the generic tropes of each of these different classes but the real joy of the game comes from teaming up with other players so I remember the very first time that I started playing, a friend said, oh, join the Warriors Guild because uh, your skill tree is based in combat, which you need to kill things, which will get you the most experience. So it's the best thing for beginners. So, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. I'll, you know, just smacking rats and, you know, <laughs> dogs and uh, beggars with my mace and all the rest of it. And I was sort of plodding along quite nicely. And then him and one of my other friends was like, oh, we're going to go and do a quest if you're in. So well, I don't know what that means, but yeah, let's go and do it. And we all joined up together, and we all went into this house, and all of a sudden we were attacked by three wind demons. And I was like, oh fuck, well I need to do, I need to help out my friends because you know they one of them's a thief and one of them's an assassin. They're not going to be able to tank any of these hits. So I was just like, kill all. <laughs> and looking back on it, and sort of. <laughs> Being more aware of the nuances of the syntax, I realised that um, I was not perhaps as helpful as I could have been. 
because <laughs> I just typed kill all and press go and I was like well that's that thanks everybody <laughs> good night <laughs> you're going to thank me later when they're, when they're singing songs of you in the mead halls on a broader sense of my entire personal development it did increase my reading comprehension <laughs> Yeah. Because of the pace of things, like you know, you're going left, you're going right, you're going up, you're going down. You have to sort of think, like, oh, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. Okay, well, I've reached here, now I need to go this way. And you need to sort of pick apart what people actually want you to do so you can complete quests and get your quest points to get your experience and all the rest of it. I really wish that I put it in my list now because... It's just been an episode for that, hasn't it? It really has, yeah. So, yeah, let, let, let's call this uh, 10B. <laughs> the Discworld Mud. <laughs> oh, boy. As soon as you get the basis of it, it's really easy to just jump back into and enjoy it. Yeah, it's it's intuitive, it's helpful, and there's a really nice community behind it. Not only on the uh, on the old chat channels who sort of give newbies all the help they'll need not only with advice, but with items and stuff that they can sell to really sort of customise their own loadouts and all the various shops and everything. I, d- I don't know what it's looking like now, because I haven't played it for about 10 years, but... I bet it's still going. This stuff always does. It, it must be still going. It persists. Yeah, but back, back in the day, everybody who had any sort of clout had their own free webs or Wix sites talking about their specific corner of the disc. It was a real community effort it was just a wonderful experience and i'm sad real life caught up with me and i had to sort of slowly give it up i i, I nearly became a coder for it did you yeah but it coincided with my gcse's oh fuck them yeah well <laughs> I, I wish i'd known that at the time i mean just think this is like your sliding doors moment think about where you could have been <laughs> yeah drop out of school and help code the uh the Discworld mud i could have been the next elon musk that's it. Being a computer savvy, thick as shit dickhead. Yeah, I was going to say, less of a fucking dingus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, on that, that's that. A wee snifter of our web based gaming in the early 2000s. Next week, unbelievably, we, we wrap up the Chris and Minty Adventure Month with one final oddball entry in our bonus level canon. But if you have enjoyed this episode in the here and now, or indeed any episode from the R3Sense Pantheon, please do subscribe, please do leave us a nice review, please do tell your pals, and look us up on all of the social media if you fancy getting more involved. As mentioned at the top of the episode, you can find us at facebook.com slash R3Sense, you can find us on YouTube by searching R3Sense Podcast, and on Instagram by typing in O3C Podcast. For those with pockets of plenty who've listened to us talk and thought, I like the cut of their jib, and want to support our jib financially, patreon.com slash r3cents has all of the details. If you want to reach out to us individually, my Twitter beep boop is at chaz underscore hodges. And mine is clamant underscore boo. Good night, everyone, and good luck. Farewell. With a purposeful grimace and a terrible smile, join Nikki and Wyatt as we stomp our way through the history of Toho's Dai Kaiju films in Discuss All Monsters. Are you telling me we're going to discuss all monsters? We won't stop until there isn't a monster left to discuss. 
smash that play button like Godzilla and King Kong smash an 18th century Japanese pagoda. Only on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Video Death Loop is a podcast where we watch a short video clip on loop until we just can't take it anymore. Along the way, we'll try our best to make each other laugh and to hold out longer than the other guy. You can jump in on any episode. No need to worry about continuity. Check out Video Death Loop on the Greenlit Podcast Network with new episodes every Friday.